From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, the prima donna talent that we're forced to deal with here at EWTN, the green room requests, the first class travel yeah. from the theology office over to the studio, uh, it's just, it's something. It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to EWTN's Open Line Friday. Let's leave it the, at that, Jack. The way. high maintenance Colin Donovan is uh, waiting to take your phone calls. <laughs> the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, if you uh, are outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 271 2985 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com i'm jack williams the lovely and talented michael mccall producing the program and if the lovely and talented michael mccall could slip into the utility room and make sure the lights that are supposed to be on are turned on that would be a lovely thing. Uh, Matt Gubensky is screening your phone calls today. And our social media maven is Mr. Jeff Burson. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And uh, it should get to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? Getting by. I'm trying now, to I get by. I suspect that the light that is bothering you. Yes. It's probably only bothering you because you saw it come on. That could I be. think it's already on when you get in here, I and you haven't noticed, noticed it, it for that now. reason. Yes. So I think we'll... You know, it was like a police searchlight in your eyes, <laughs> <laughs> standing on the prow which of I'm a sure con- brought ship back, carrying contraband which, or something. Which I'm sure has brought back some very bad Royal Canadian Mounted Police memories for you. <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah. Or, the shore, or the shore patrol pulling up alongside <laughs> yeah. or something like that, you know. Well, there you go. There you go. So, uh, we haven't taken emails. We've had some topics to discuss in, in recent weeks, so let's... Let's take a few emails here at the beginning of the program. Jeff writes in, Gaining a plenary indulgence requires having no attachment to sin, not even venial sin. It seems to me that this is an impossible standard to meet since we are all predisposed to sin. How can we know that we have gained a plenary indulgence? Well, you can't. You make your best effort to be detached from the sin, and that's about all you can do because, you know, the, the difficulty with our human weakness is our attachments to creatures, which is where sin comes from, where we set the, the good of a creature over the good of God and following the divine law, the moral law, the natural law. Um, the difficulty of that is we live with our fallen nature constantly. And so it's the idea that we, we are contrite when we, when we go to confession. Um, we should come out of confession 
unattached to those things sinful that we have done. This is not always the case. And so the plenary indulgence gives us an opportunity to sort of, uh, you might say, focus the way an athlete might focus before doing uh, an athletic feat. To focus on the moment, on the moment, and on God and His goodness, and to make as sincere as effort as possible to renounce our creaturely attachments, which have been interposed a barrier between us and God, you know, and there can be many of them in each individual's life. And so we make the best effort to do that. And so in doing that, we, we cannot know with a certainty. The only thing we can know with certainty is the words which the confessor pronounces, I am in the name of you know, Christ in the church, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We take that to be a fact because acting as a minister of Christ, the priest does that. That doesn't mean we don't have purification. That doesn't mean we don't want to avoid, that we don't have to avoid reattaching ourselves to those things which have been a creaturely problem for us in the past, but at least in that moment. And so in gaining an indulgence, we're focusing on that task of repentance and of detachment from creatures that has is really the goal of holiness itself. And the great saints achieve that detachment. Uh, the lesser saints struggle and struggle and get uh, as far as they can go, that growth in charity, which God's providence provides for them. Um, but it's a, it's a struggle which goes to the end of life. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Terry writes in, A Catholic cemetery near me is observing the Day of the Dead. If there is All Souls Day and All Saints Day, why this day? Is it a religious day? If so, why altars to the dead with food, sugar, skulls, and items relating to things the deceased enjoy in life, playing cards, beer bottle, TV guide, mm -hmm. etc., on altars are in church and used for Mass only? Uh, she has an image here that we obviously are not going to make sure, use yeah. of on radio. Uh, she said, it seems pagan to me. Please comment on my concerns. Um... It seems pagan to me. Uh, <laughs> altars are to be used for one purpose. That's the celebration of the sacrament. And it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't matter what the essentially personal or secular usage of it is. It's not, it shouldn't be used for anything other than those holy purposes. Uh, the Day of the Dead is a, con as a cultural phenomenon, especially in Mexico and, and, and some other Latin countries, uh, you know, that's one thing, to be celebrated in the family, to be celebrated in the community. Those are celebrations, many of which are, are very, very long. They shouldn't be imported into the sacramental context except as the norms for the liturgy itself allows. Uh, and that is certainly not allowed. Uh, those kinds of things should not be displayed on the altar, even for what would ostensibly be the good purpose of prayer for and honoring for the deceased. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Teresa writes in, I am a cradle Catholic, attend Mass regularly, and receive the Holy Eucharist. I've always wondered what is meant by Jesus died for our sins. How do we relate the timeline of his passion and crucifixion to our present sins? Well... There's an expression in theology, theandric. It means God and 
and man. Theos, God, uh, Andros, man. So what Christ did is a divine act. It happened historically. It happened in a moment of time or in the course of those days of the passion, resurrection, death, passion, death, and resurrection. But it has an eternal value. It's a value that we certainly believe in when we say that the Mass represents that sacrifice, for example. So the way to understand that is, is that, yes, an act done by the Son of God in a human nature, therefore it's temporal and it's human. But that same, that same human nature was also vivified by the, by the second person of the Trinity, by the person of, of the second, second person. And so it was a divine and a human act all at one. In fact, all of his acts during his life had this theandric character to them. And so on that basis, this is how we tie everything that seems only in a historical context to the eternal context, which means going back to the beginning of time and the sin of Adam and Eve, going forward to the end of time and the last sin uh, that any human being ever commits in history, that Christ encompasses all of those, and only he could do it because only he united in himself both the divine nature and our human nature. And finally, here at the end of this segment, Luke writes in, My wife had to have a full hysterectomy after childbirth due to some medical issues. My question is, is it a sin to have relations, marital relations, if, we'd, we, if it will knowingly not result in children? Well, it's not, not your fault. It was a medical necessity, I'm presuming, and that being the case, there is no reason why your conjugal life can't continue normally. Uh, your inability to have children is no different than the inability of the aged to have children, uh, yet they're not required to live in a celibate lifestyle. Uh, certainly things can be given up for the sake of God and the glory of God is Mary and Joseph gave up the entirety of, the conju- their, of their conjugal life in that aspect. But uh, there is, you're under no obligation to do that. So... Um, from that point of view, there is no sin whatsoever in doing that. Uh, if there was some wrongness attached to the decision for her hysterectomy, which your question gave no indication that there would be, then that would be another matter. We can't knowingly do something, of course, hoping to benefit from it, in a, you know, even though our root motives were sinful. That doesn't sound like that was the case here, though. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Andy in Pennsylvania, Dominic in Iowa, Martin in Alberta, and we would love to talk to you as well. The number is 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Great item in EWTN's religious catalog. It's the 16-month Saints Calendar and Daily Planner for 2023. This Daily Planner features several fascinating mini-biographies and illustrations of the saints, one for each week. Also included are the feast days for both the Novus Ordo and the Extraordinary Form Liturgical Calendar, as well as days of fasting and abstinence, ember days, and vigils. 
a great reference. It contains an alphabetical listing of over 700 patron saints. The 16-month at-a-glance two-page spreads for easy uh, for ease of scheduling and extra pages at the back for notes and references uh, make this the ideal tool for everyday use. It is spiral-bound, which allows plenty of space for daily appointments and a convenient lay-flat format. I use this particular item myself, and every September when it rolls around, I am beating down the door of EWTN's Religious Catalog catalog store here on campus to remind them that it starts in September, mm-hmm. not at the end of the year because it's a 16-month calendar and it's really easy to use. Uh, it has weekly views. It has daily views. It has monthly views. It's terrific. So I would encourage you to check that out at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com where they're offering free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. First up is Andy in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Andy, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, it's Angie. Um, my question was about the gospel readings for the Sunday Mass. My father attended Mass last week, and they announced—well, they didn't announce, actually. They just started the gospel reading, and it was not the usual reading. Mm-hmm. And then during the homily, the priest said the bishop had switched the reading, but he didn't explain why. And I was just—I mean, neither of us have ever encountered that before, so I was just wondering, is that, you know, is that a, a loud thing? Is it something mm-hmm. that is done, and why would it be done? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I don't recall exactly what the gospel was about that day. Um, normally, the gospel, the plan of the lectionary is, is uh, something that is uh, provided to the bishop's conference. Uh, uh, it's, you know, if there are any changes to it, it's by agreement with the Holy See. Um there might be occasions when the Sunday readings are different. For example, for example, sometimes in a diocese, it may be in the cathedral, the dedication of that cathedral's feast day or some, or some feast like that, or in a religious community. Uh, sometimes they're permitted to have the, 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 their saint, uh, who is the founder of celebration, on, on a Sunday as well. There can be reasons why different, but then the whole liturgy is changed and not uh, such uh, just a gospel. So I can't think of a reason why there would have been in this case. As I said, the lectionary uh, and the order of the Mass is established for that particular Sunday of the year. Uh, What unique circumstances might have moved the bishop to do that? Um, To that, I can't speak without a lot more details. Thanks, Angie. We appreciate the phone call. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. 833-288-3986. Next up is Dominic, a first-time caller in the great state of Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Dominic, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Okay. In the, my question is, in the mm-hmm. book in the book of the Bible, 1 Samuel, chapter 28, mm-hmm. verse 19, Samuel says to Saul, King Saul, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Does that mean King Saul went with 
Samuel even after he did all those evil things, or did Samuel go to hell? I don't think it's being that precise. Um, uh, you mean did Saul go to hell? I, I don't think it's it's meant to be that precise. Remember, at this time, the idea of going to the dead was the predominant predominant one. Sheol in in the Hebrew. So from that, it's you know it doesn't distinguish the way we do now in Catholic theology between heaven, hell, and purgatory. We see that also in the Gospel of Luke with the story of the rich man. Uh, we know certainly that there's a distinguishing between Lazarus going to the place of beatitude, the bosom of Abraham, and uh, the rich man going to a place of suffering, uh, Gehenna, as it would have been known at that time. So there was there was some kind of distinction, but I don't think that detail is really given to us because simply, if you think about it, we, we can't know. You would hope that Saul would be have been repentant for his sins. He paid the price of his attitude. We have to think of, of how he treated uh, David, for example. Uh, and yet David did the upright thing, and when somebody came crowing to him that he... he you know, had killed Saul. He saw the opportunity and took it. David slew him on the spot because Saul was still the Lord's anointed, and he treated him as uh, according to the office which he had as king of Israel. But I don't think in this particular case we can presume where Saul went, as we can't in 99.99% of cases where anybody goes. Obviously, people who die notoriously in sinful situations probably are not unfairly judged to go to the other place. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't know that for certainty, and we wish the mercy of God for them. And I think we can we can wish that mercy for Saul, too, because I don't think the text is trying to clarify that for us. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Martin is in Alberta, Canada, listening to EWTN today are actually watching us on YouTube. Martin, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, guys. Glad to be on here. Um, I was listening to your station the other day, and uh, Father John Ricardo was uh, made a couple of points, and one mm-hmm. is that God loves you, right, as, as a person. And then his second point was the bad news is that, you know, he created a perfect being, a.k.a. the, de- the you know, um, Lucifer and Lucifer decided to rebel, right? And and his his vengeance is that he wants to ruin this this creation that God loves. So I'm just wondering. I think this is kind of a message that that should be told to uh, other to people because it seems to be the society doesn't understand one that God is love and and loves them. Mm-hmm. And, but secondly, that, that the devil plan is to undermine God and, and sure. bring everybody down to hell with him. So I just wanted to hear yeah. your take on this. Well, theologically, that certainly is what the Church teaches, that uh, uh, in point of fact, as a human creature, Adam and Eve, our first parents, were also perfect, as were the angels were according to their nature. But with this thing, freedom, that God gave us, which is a reflection of his own divine intellect and will, the, 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 the love of truth and the, and the willing of the good, 
comes the possibility of going against God. And the very first moral act of Lucifer was to do that. And the others followed him. Uh, they saw some good in it, the false good that we all see when we, we were just talking about creatures. Creatures are, are maybe good in their nature, but they're false goods if they pull us away from God. And so uh, somehow the other angels saw that in Lucer, Lucifer's decision not to serve. And likewise with Adam and Eve, uh, drawn, to, drawn into to sin by the envy of the devil, as it's been described, but also obviously by the temptation which Eve posited to, to Adam. Now, the effect of that is, of course, that mankind's ability to see things is greatly weakened. Its ability to love correctly, to love the good authentically and truly and faithfully is weakened. And this is the same problem it was 10 minutes after the fall, as it will be 10 minutes before the second coming. And that is the weakness of our human nature. And so we have to lead people to the point where they accept that God has, first of all, reality today. They have to accept the authority of divine revelation as God's gift to us to lead us along a path which brings us back to eternal beatitude with him. There's a lot of ifs in that how to get people to understand that. So the church does that by her teaching, and you'll, you'll see that in the, in the readings at the Mass. You'll see it in the programming on EWTN and even other Catholic stations that are, are not part of EWTN because they wish to, they, they wish to reveal to people this, this, these truths. And our evangelical brothers and sisters who are doing this are also trying to do that. And, of course, the Orthodox Jews would also like to see all mankind come to give the honor that is due to God, although they don't understand those questions as we would. So all of those who love God and seek him would like to have others do the same. Um, the trouble is convincing them. Just saying it to them will not convince them. I think the disorder in the universe is certainly a way to understand that. This often comes up just in the question of, well, why, why do people suffer? Is God is good? Why do they suffer? And that's a way of getting into this, this very problem which you talked about, this so-called problem of suffering or the problem of evil, because it goes back to the beginning that the angels who were constituted to assist God in his governance of creation rebelled, or a portion of them, a third is, is, is generally understood. And these angels, whose then tasks in the universe were unfilled, had to be filled by others. And as Aquinas and, and other authors explain at length, this brought about a certain disorder. And so they have seeded disorder in the creation. And finally, through the original sin, they seeded disorder in us. And this battle is one the church understands well, it's known as the mystery of iniquity, the mysterium iniquitatis, meaning that from the very instant of creation and the re rebellion of the, the bad angels, this mystery is at work to destroy the plan of God. Just to as in the mystery of piety, the mysterium pietatis, the good angels and all of those who seek God are trying to bring back to the Father, which is where the, the piety is owed, to the Father, the head, as it were, the foundation of the Trinity and of, of all things. Bring back that piety, show that manifest, that piety to God the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit. We're trying to undo that, but you've got to get 
lift the veil and get people to see these distinctions. Our enemies are doing it for us because surprisingly every day I'm amazed at the extent to which they lift another little corner of the veil revealing the mystery of evil at work in the world and we're seeing it more and more and I hope that will convince people and I pray and and we're working here at EWTN to being able to do that but God's grace is necessary and their openness as well 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number 833-288-3986 it's open line Friday with Colin Donovan This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. In one second, we're going to talk to Eric in Phoenix, Arizona. But Angie, if you're still listening, we received a phone call from a parishioner in your diocese who said the bishop moved the feast of the North American martyrs. And that's what accounted for you not... Uh, recognizing the gospel for that particular liturgy. Yeah, and there are certainly some parts of the country where that's a, a very important feast day, especially those in the Northeast that, um, you know, the Iroquois and the Mohawk and St. Kateri and others, uh, and Isaac Jogues and those, trampled all over that countryside. So it uh, has significance for them. Uh, one of our great radio partners needs your help next week. Archangel Radio right here in Mobile, Alabama, is airing their fall pledge drive starting Tuesday. If you're listening in Mobile, Fairhope, Daphne, or anywhere down near the Gulf, please support your Catholic radio station. As advertised, Eric is up next in Phoenix, Arizona, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Eric, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, good afternoon. I was... Go ahead, Eric. I was... Uh... I was listening to your answer to the lady who talked mm -hmm. about what does it mean for Jesus to have died for our sins. And I've considered that myself, and I wonder if my layman's answer comes close to your theological answer. And I, I kind of relate it to our uh, understanding of the way sacramentals are, how we need signs, physical signs, to see spiritual reality. And I was wondering if Christ as God, being tortured and abused and then killed, finally, was kind of a representation of what humanity has done to God by disobeying sure. in yeah. all... Well, I, I think in a certain analogous sense, that's true. Uh, remembering that for God... Uh, there's no possibility of suffering in the divine nature. In fact, that was an early heresy where, you know, well, if Jesus suffered and he's a person of the Godhead and the Father is a person of the Spirit, then the Father suffered. And the Patropassianism, the idea of the Father's suffering, was, uh, was a heretical idea. So you can't, because the divine nature is unchangeable. So for this reason, obviously, we distinguish even in Christ between uh, his divine nature and his human nature. And his human nature, as I noted in that answer, it gets its existence from the second person of the Holy Trinity. Uh, so there is in Christ, there is certainly that significance there, I think, in a way of properly understood. 
But we have to remember what is at stake here. Uh, The other way of looking at that is sometimes we can view it as a question of love. We can view it as a question of justice. And the church has gone back and forth between these ideas. Uh, Justice, obviously, the 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 volume, if you will, quantitatively and qualitatively human sins from the beginning to the end of time. So how does one satisfy the justice? And then on the point, on the other end of it, the love with which God first gave us these prerogatives of of intellect and will and the freedom, then the, the ability to know things and the freedom to do things and to judge things based on that. Yet he did it knowing all of what would come to pass. Where does this love and this justice intersect? And I think it's on the cross. Because one of, part of Jesus' message was that, uh, that justice is perfected in charity. We shouldn't view them as something that is separated. So on the one hand, you do have, as you noted, Jesus himself was perfectly innocent, and so all of the sins of human mankind, you know, heaped upon him. And we see the marks of that. Devotionally, we often think of that in the wounds of Christ, in the hands of Christ, in the open side of Christ, this cost of our salvation. And so, yes, it has that devotional purpose to us. And it has that purpose of showing that, that sin always needs to be repaired, and so from that point of view, certainly Christ repaired for the insult of the disobedience, primarily the disobedience that is involved in every human sin and every angelic sin, for that matter, that is committed. So he repaired for that. But he didn't do it as a judge just sort of balancing this. He did it because he loved us, because the Father loves us and sent his Son, and the Holy Spirit brought that about. And with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we were, we're brought back to, to the Godhead. And so that's what the charity does. But there's always, I think, that element of the cost of it, the reparative value of it, the effect which our sins have had. But it wasn't if this was a play act by Jesus in any sense. He really did suffer those things. And in some sense, which we can't understand, but what I, I think... Uh, among the mystics and even those who wish to use mystical language in this respect speak of the, you know, that in a certain sense, every the weight of every sin. And we can't comprehend that uh, except that this was a divine person who did this and not you and me. We can hardly bear the weight of our own sins, much less billions of people. But somehow the God-man did that. And as you say, that's represented in the extent to which he suffered and the way he was punished by both the Jewish authorities and the Romans representing the whole of humanity. You know, it reminds me of the scene in The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, where, um, you know, he sort of has the, the, the general character of evil in the female mm-hmm. robed person in the garden. Yeah, representing the devil. Right, yeah. who's trying to uh, convince Jesus that it's too much. Yes, even for you, it's That's right. too much yeah. to bear. Yeah. Too much. Yeah, very good. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Dennis in White Rock, British Columbia. Have you been to White Rock? 
As a mid- I probably have. Midwestern boy like you get out west very often? Uh, you mean Midwestern Canadian? Yeah. <laughs> a few times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he says, please explain how we came to refer to the early saints as saints before the formal process was instituted. When was the process instituted, and why or how did the archangels get saint designation? Okay. Well, a saint simply means holy. We think of the word we use at the Mass, sanctus, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. So the saints are the holy ones, and that's why the angels are considered uh, saints as well, because they too are holy. And Paul uses that in a accommodated sense all the time in his letters to the saints of this church or that church. So even we who are just here on earth are saints to that degree, although we're not canonized saints, and that's the word that is distinctive. In the early church, everything was intended to be the imitatio, imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. What did Christ do? We were just talking about it. He died for our sins. And so the early martyrs had a preeminent place among the saints. And so the early martyrs were solemnized in the Mass, in the canon of the Mass, that principal part of the prayer. We still do this to this day, where we have the names of the saints and the martyrs. We have the, you know, the Our Lady and St. Joseph and the Apostles. We have the saints and the martyrs of the early Roman Church, primarily in the Roman canon. But the same thing, they were put in, being inserted into the canon, and that came about locally when bishops and the surrounding regions and say where these martyrs died would mention their great martyrs in in the canon of the mass so it was a it was not an informal process like you could put anybody in there there was a but it was primarily regional and local and as time goes on we see in after the era of persecution we see this imitatio christi becoming about the life of virtue because frankly we're not really permitted to run around looking to be martyred. St. Francis wanted to do that, and, you know, the Lord didn't answer tisk, that prayer. Tisk, yeah. Tisk, tisk, <laughs> didn't, didn't give that to him. Uh, God will give it to those to whom he will give it, uh, either because they're doing their duty and it comes in the course of that, but not because they go off seeking for it. But the imitation of Christ in the virtuous life became the standard of the saints. And so we find the, the confessors, the fathers and doctors and confessors of the, of the early church and of the medieval church and uh, uh, the great saints, the Francis's and Dominics. But of course, by that time already, the church has, was starting to centralize the process of investigating it. Uh, you can imagine the, how, how the difficult, difficult that would be in that world where you don't have the communications we have today. But there was that effort to be be careful not to canonize people, perhaps, who uh, were not totally worthy. And from that impetus, these the norms developed uh, over the course of centuries and uh, probably about uh, eight or nine centuries now, in some form, this has been practiced. More methodically, since uh, the 1700s, uh, uh, Pope Lambertini, who was Benedict the 14th, I believe, uh, who developed a, a great array of theological explanations of these kinds of matters and canonizations and miracles and apparitions and things and established basically the norms that we're still using today in the canonization process and for miracles and apparitions and so on. So the church is a, is a living entity, and she grows with time. She grows in her understanding, and she sees practical value to norms. Uh, but until then, 
She was still operated by faith and designated people who lived holy lives or martyred for the faith uh, simply in the beginning in the, in the canon of the Mass and more complexly in the canonization process uh, that developed in the second millennium. Next up is Spencer, a first-time caller in Chicago, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Spencer, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Uh, good afternoon. Um, yes. I just have a, I have a question about the uh, so-called um, Gospels mm-hmm. that were written by other people, like uh, say Mary Magdalene wrote a Gospel, Thomas wrote a Gospel, uh, some say even Judas. Um, I dare not read them because they're not in Scripture, but I was just wondering if you know why they were not put into Holy Scripture. Because the consensus of the Church is they were not from the Apostles. Uh, Many of them, I think, came about in the second century. They had Gnostic origins. Remember, the Gnostics were a group whose salvation was based on the knowledge. They had the perfects. They had the beginners. uh, uh, So the penitents, I think, might have been the middle one there, the first one. But they had different levels, but it wasn't really about grace and, and the gift of grace, but it was about the, you know, how much you knew and you had to be among the perfect and so on. And so these things come out of that ambient, and the the Church simply rejected them. They acquired no universal uh, value or fame whatsoever. A little bit of nod has been given over the centuries to the Evangel, the Gospel of of, uh, James. Uh, It's apocryphal, but yet we know that there are some things of historical information there. Our names of the parents of Mary, Joachim, and Anne come from that. That probably came about because they were already known and they got inserted in that and not the other way around, that the Church looked to that uh, pseudo-evangelium for information. But for the most part, the Church made those decisions and it was the consensus of the the bishops of the day just to ignore that stuff and shove it off in a corner. Just in general protocol, the next email on the stack, why isn't the Book of Enoch included in the canon of Scripture? That's at the other end of the date line, <laughs> because that's before Christ came, and that is uh, uh, one of the intertestamental works. Now, it probably it records certain things which have interest to uh, those who study the angels, because that and the Book of Jubilees and others, I think, uh, have uh, a lot of the uh, the Jewish not history or theology per se, but myths about uh, the angels and and those kinds of things. But they were never accepted really either by Christians or Jews, although there are some of, I think, the smaller Eastern churches, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure if the Ethiopian Copts or some of those have found value in some of the angel names that are listed in there. For example, the four archangels that we don't not we don't know and we're not permitted to call upon because we don't have their names out of sacred scripture are in that and are sometimes used even in the sacraments in those churches. But in the Roman church, that's never been allowed because those have never been accepted. Those intertestamental works which preceded the Christian canon and those post-testamental works that came about as the Apocrypha afterwards, like the Gnostic writings, the church just uh, ignores them. They are of interest to scholars, however, but for any historical information and factual things they can get out of them. 
Uh, thanks, Spencer. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out the Catholic Sphere this Sunday afternoon, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This week, your host is yours truly. And I'll be talking to three of the ladies of Catholic Radio, my lovely wife, Johnette Williams, Teresa Tamio, and Debbie Giorgiani. Uh, retrace their steps on their way to the Catholic Airwaves. That's the Catholic Sphere this Sunday afternoon, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Brandon in the great state of Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Brandon, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Um, I have a question uh, that I have been wondering about. What did Jesus mean when he said that we're to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him? Like, what is that... What did he mean by that, and how do I sure. do that? Yeah. Well, um, sort of try some tie some of the subjects together we were talking about earlier. You know, I talked about Jesus doing these theandric acts, divine and human. One of the theandric acts he did was to, at every moment, perfectly obey the Father. Um, the good angels do this as well. In fact, in the Our Father, we pray. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, the only creatures in heaven other than God at that time were the good angels. So we are called to that perfect obedience. Now, we see what perfect obedience of the absolutely innocent human being brought upon him. So I can guarantee you that in the normal course of things, if you're just trying to avoid sin and do good, you will have many enemies and you will have many crosses. And I think the first thing that Jesus is asking us to do is to be faithful, faithful to God, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the church for Catholics, uh, faithful to our hierarchy as Catholics, faithful to the sacraments, to prayer, to doing the penitential things the church asks us to do. All these things, it's that fidelity first of all, and with that will come the cross. You know, if you're a priest, the cross will come. I just read something just today that one of the things priests are most scared of today is the false accusation. And we know that the false accusation of a sexual abuse of some kind or other has been posited. It's a way of getting back at the church. It's a way of getting money out of the church. Now, there are true cases, obviously. Priests can be guilty of those things, but there is also the false accusation. And good priests are worrying about that. That's got to be a cross added to the crosses of the ordinary duties of the pastor or the bishop or the pope, for that matter. And so if you're married, there are going to be crosses with that, the sickness of spouse and children and yourself. So whatever walk of life we're in, there's going to be those things which require of us to sort of man up, be faithful despite the difficulty of being faithful, especially in sin, um, and there's a, a, an interesting aspect of that in that if you're familiar at all about the, the apparitions at Fatima in 1917, and you can find that uh, on EWTN's website at EWTN.com Fatima if you want to, one of the things that Our Lady asked was to do penance. And the, the, the young woman, then young woman of 10, uh, Lucia, who went on to become a sister and then uh, a nun and a saint, uh, I think, in her own right. 
and to continue to have conversations with our Lord and Our Lady, one of which was to ask what, what penance should people do? And the Lord's response was, the penance I ask is to perform the duties of their state in life. So the first penance we can do is to be faithful to the commandments of God, to be faithful to our obligations to the society, to the church, to our families, and to others, to do the, do the things which our vocational call demands of us. That's the primary penance God is asking for us. That's the taking up the cross daily that not only people of the 21st century could do, but also people of the, of the first century. Uh, and so that, I think, is what Jesus is asking you to do to, in taking up your cross daily and follow him, is to those obediences, and the cross will come, uh, and all of us find that very quickly. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833 3986. Uh, and remember, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at ewtn.com. Next up is Patty in Dayton, Ohio, watching us today on Facebook Live. Patty, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. Hey, Patty. What's your question today? Um, my question is, when um, I was 19, I became a Catholic. I wasn't raised mm-hmm. anything. And um, I got divorced in the 70s. I'm old. And so <laughs> um, the, the priest told me not to come back. To, I was very devout. Mm-hmm. And the priest told me, don't come back to church, don't receive communion. And I had to just leave. And I mean, I could have went, I moved, I moved away. I could have just showed up at a Catholic church, but I didn't mm-hmm. do that. I stayed away. But now that I'm older, I want to come back. I, I feel like this is an unresolved thing. Like sure. I, yeah. before I go home with Jesus, I want to resolve and make peace with the church. Yeah. I don't know well, how. Yeah. And the first thing, and you were given bad advice because whatever this priest said, a pope said, and it's Pope John Paul II in a wonderful document on family, family life in the world, uh, Familiaris Consortio from late 70s or 80s, I think. In any case, he encouraged those who are divorced to go back to church. Yes, you may not, if you are sexually active, receive Holy Communion. Obviously, you have to be repentant of sin and go to confession to do that but to come to the church because there is grace for you there. So that was very bad advice, and I hope the priest repented of that if he ever, if he gave it to you or if he gave it to others. So that would be one element of it. Uh, I think I'm, I'm delighted that you're not discouraged by that kind of treatment, frankly. Um, you obviously have more mercy for the church than, than that priest had for you. What you need to do, I think, is to go find yourself a good solid priest, uh, even call the diocese and ask to have a meeting with somebody there about this. Uh, Somebody who's divorced and remarried as you have been, there could be serious questions of your will to to marry in each of those. Uh, Certainly there's a possibility of validity. 
if your marriage, your first marriage as a young woman before you divorced was valid, then then the other marriages are simply not valid. That that would be clear. Maybe it wasn't valid either that you went on and married three other times. So there's nothing we can resolve on the radio here, but I think a good sit down with some a priest who understands both the moral theology and the, the law regarding the sacrament uh, would be of great benefit to you, and I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you to get to Mass this Sunday and bring, you know, get a rosary maybe, and if you're not in a position to go up to communion, if you are not living with somebody and you're simply separated from that first husband, not living with him either, then you are free to go to confession and be reconciled with the church. That is clear, which means just that resolve not to sin. So if you have that, then Saturday there will be confessions in some parish around you, if not each of them. That is something you can avail yourself to, because that is the process of getting back to the church, frankly, is you're a baptized Catholic, and you can make a good confession, and you can return to the practice of the sacraments, which would allow you to return on Sunday and receive Holy Communion. And then you can also go from there and deal with the situation of the marriages. But the main thing is, if you're living singly without any kind of, you know, relations with somebody, sexual relations with somebody, then you should be able to settle that in the confessional as soon as tomorrow. And very quickly, Colin, I'm going to ask Courtney's question uh, for him. Uh, he is in Union County, Kentucky, listening on Eucharist Radio and wants to know the Catholic Church's teaching on Noah's Ark. It's in the Bible. Something happened. Uh, the peoples that are described there, we assume, came from it. I think the greatest debate would be whether it's obviously is speaking of the peoples of the Mediterranean basin that were known to whoever wrote that down or of the whole world. We know that in the Americas, for example, or in Australia and other places, there would have been people living. We don't have to resolve those historical questions, but I think we, we take it at, at, at historical value in some relationship with the, with the peoples of the, of the Middle East, and I think that's, that's our starting point for understanding it. Were there snakes on the ark? Good question. <laughs> there must have been. <laughs> They're here now. They never made it to Ireland after yeah. that. <laughs> On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Friday, and thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. We'll be back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, God bless.